Hall, the presiding judge and judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be seated. Thank you. Welcome to the Court of Appeals. Um, my name is John Tyson. Uh, your panel today consists of, to my right, Judge Jeff Carpenter. To my left, Judge Darren Jackson. We have uh, Mr. Robert McFarlane, who is our clerk today, and also Richard Remilliard, who is here as our court marshal. Uh, the case of Herman Godwin Trust versus uh, Cecil Harville et al. Um, Ms. Aries, you're here on behalf of the appellate? Yes. Yes, Your Honor, I am. Okay. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, do you wish to reserve time for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. Ten minutes, please. Okay. Ms. McFarland, can you get that done? Thank you. All right. Uh, is there any preliminary matters to come before the court before we begin? No, Your Honor. Okay. Then we, you may proceed. Thank, Thank you. you. Your Honors, my name is Liz Arias. This is my co-counsel, Jesse Schaefer, and together we represent the appellant, Teresa Godwin, in this caveat, will caveat and trust caveat matter. I intend to address the first two of the four issues before the court, which are the issues of lack of capacity and undue influence. And Mr. Schaefer will address the other two, the exclusion of Bob Godwin as a witness in the substantial merit claim. Okay. As, as I'm sure your honors are aware, our client is the sole surviving child of the deceit, her father, Herman Godwin. And she filed a caveat challenging his estate planning documents, both his will and his revocable trust. Those documents were signed on August 9th of 2017. It is our client's position that the, the documents that are valid are the ones that were signed by him and his wife back in 2009. Is there a presumption that a person is competent? Yes, there is, Your Honor. And is that presumption only overcome by clear, cogent, convincing evidence to show otherwise? I think the standard is not quite clear and convincing, but it is the burden on the caveator absent proof that the burden has shifted due to a fiduciary role held by the propounder, which does not exist in this case. So, but you're not arguing it's a mere preponderance? Correct, Your Honor. Okay. And in this case, um, the, the lack of capacity claim was dismissed at summary judgment, and the issue of undue influence went to trial. And after three weeks of trial, a directed verdict was granted for profounders. And so the standard of review on appeal of these two issues is whether, upon examination of all of the evidence that we, on behalf of Caviator, uh, presented, taken in the light most favorable to us, with us being given the benefit of every reasonable inference drawn, was the evidence sufficient to be submitted to the jury? And it's not before this court to do a weighing of the evidence or to determine the credibility of witnesses, but merely look at whether the evidence that we presented was sufficient to go to a jury. How is the burden on directed verdict different from summary judgment? Uh, all the evidence is looked at in the light most favorable to non-movement, correct? Correct. So what is the difference there? Uh, is it a, for the person against whom the directed verdict motion is made, is it even a higher standard than at summary judgment? No, Your Honor. I, I, for all intents and purposes, I think the standard is the same. You take all the evidence in a light most favorable to the non-moving party. At summary judgment, you always hear, is there an issue of material fact? So if there's an issue of material fact, it should survive and go on. Right. Likewise, if our evidence put forward at the jury trial um, is sufficient to submit in, uh, the case to a jury, it should go to a jury. Because at that point, no other evidence has been put on. So a weighing of the evidence the propounders say they would have had they been entitled to go forward is not the job of this court, but merely to look at the totality of the evidence that we have. I don't want to direct your argument, but in terms, is should we address the summary judgment as a threshold issue? I, your Honor, I would say you address them together because the standard is essentially the same. And that would be my intention, is to, is to, direct, is to apply that standard, which is upon examination of all the evidence in the light most favorable to us we should have gotten to the jury on both claims. Would you argue that if we agree with you on either one, the case has to go back? Yes, Your Honor. 
I'm sure your honors are very familiar with the standard, the elements for lack of capacity and undue influence, but starting with lack of capacity, the law in North Carolina is very, very clear that a, a, a testator has testamentary capacity if he understands the natural objects of his bounty, if he understands what his assets are, if he understands the effect of the plan that he's putting in place. And if even one of those is not met, then we are entitled to go to trial on the issue and entitled to a judgment that he lacks capacity. Is there any dispute that the residuary beneficiaries of the trust were grandchildren and uh, great-grandchildren of the decedent? Your Honor, the, that is one fact that was, uh, I think, incorrect in Appley's brief. The beneficiaries were one of his grandchildren and some of his great-grandchildren, but not all of them. Our client has a child and grandchildren also who were also disinherited. Okay. But the ones that he did choose were would be natural objects of his bounty, correct? Yes, other than the bequest for his caregivers who got written into the will within a year of knowing Mr. Godwin. Okay. And the attorney who got himself named as the executor and the trustee, and put language in the will directing that his law firm be, ha uh, be hired to handle the administration of the estate. Is that unusual? Uh, it is unusual, and in this case, um, the lawyer... Is it normal that the person who draws the will normally has a close relationship with the executor and, I mean, with the decedent or the testator? It is. And a lot of times the, the attorney will serve as executor and trustee. It is more usual in the case where the decedent had no children or lineal descendants. As opposed to having a family member? Correct. Particularly when the will leaves everything outright to those two children, having those two children as the executors would make sense because it saves fees and costs of administration, as was the case under the plan that this attorney did for the client in 2009. Does that fact raise any, any issue for review? that he chose an executor and trustee who was the person who drew the will? I think with respect to undue influence, it does, because the question for undue influence is whether any beneficiary named under the will procured its execution. And certainly naming yourself as an executor, such that you're now the propounder and entitled to commissions and fees that could uh, amount to the thousands of dollars, puts that issue squarely before the court. But the, neither the executor or the trustee was the beneficiary under either instrument, though, correct? Well, they're not a beneficiary in the sense that they get a specific cash bequest, but they now are entitled to, by law, commissions and attorney fees and trustee commissions. But they would be no different no matter who it was. That would be the case no matter who it was, but our, our, the facts of this case indicate that that estate planning attorney unnaturally inserted himself into this process, aligned with the caregivers, and the caregivers and the attorney together caused, procured the execution of this particular estate plan. In other words, they drove our client away from her father, creating it, uh, and, and denying her the opportunity to see her father. Wasn't there some history of uh, conflict between the decedent and this daughter? No, Your that Honor. Predated, that predated this? No, Your Honor. That is not in that record. And in fact, taking the facts in a light most favorable to us, all of our testimony was that they had a long-standing, loving relationship. He named her as his executor in 2009. He named her as his power of attorney. When he had open heart surgery in 2014, she was at his side and at the hospital. There was no history of any family tension between him and his daughter until the caregivers inserted themselves into the process and, and Herman started believing that his daughter was trying to kidnap him and put him in a nursing home. So if the caregivers did that, how does that impute anything to the defendants? Well, remember, it's propounders, and so the propounders are the two caregivers who are beneficiaries under the will, the granddaughter who's a beneficiary under the will, and the estate planning attorney. And the rules for undue influence are simply that there is a person subject to undue influence an opportunity to exert undue influence, and a result indicating undue influence, all of which we have in this case. The seven Andrews factors, which are often cited as um, factors to consider in determining whether there's a result indicating undue influence, you don't even have to meet all of them. But most of the, the appellees concede that five of the seven are met in this case. And as this Court has stated before in reviewing the issue of whether undue influence should go to a jury, the Court often states is that whether those factors or other factors exist, and whether the executor and the beneficiaries 
unduly influence the decedent in the execution of the will are material questions of fact that should be submitted to the jury for resolution. And in this case, you have uh, clear evidence as to factor number one, which is also lack of capacity. You have in this instance a decedent who was tested. He went into a neurologist asking for an evaluation that he had capacity, which they declined to give and instead said that he needed additional testing. This is 18 months before he even signs the documents at issue. He is diagnosed with both vascular dementia would and Would that Alzheimer's. be evidence of lack of capacity? It would be both. It would, it, would, it would satisfy factor one for undue influence, which is old age and diminished capacity, and it would be evidence of lack of capacity for the capacity claim. So the fact that a, that a physician may decline to render an opinion or may decline to offer treatment is a basis to show some type of uh, deficiency? Yes, Your Honor. I would argue that when you go to a neurologist stating that my attorney wants a letter of, as to mental capacity and the neurologist undertakes a 45-minute battery of tests and a CT scan and then declines to provide that letter, that is an indication, that is a fact, that is an indication that the decedent lacks capacity. And indeed, the Dr. Steele, the expert, the neurologist, determined as a result of these tests that the CT scan, this is 18 months before the documents that issue, his brain um, revealed generalized atrophy, a fairly large amount of dead zones. He suffered, importantly, from frontal and executive dysfunction, which is a condition that impairs one's ability to make decisions and manage finances. He didn't know what day of the week it was. He could only think of three words that started with the letter S in 60 seconds. He couldn't write a coherent sentence. He couldn't draw a clock face. And Dr. Steele testified that uh, the clock face drawing is not very sensitive to mild impairments. He tested 18 months before he signed the documents only one point above moderate dementia. And the same expert testified that Alzheimer's disease, it's not like where you have a lunatic that has a moment of lucidity. Alzheimer's is a disease that is inexorably progressive and that Dr. Steele testified that his, his Alzheimer's would necessarily have been worse 18 months later when he signed the documents at issue. Refresh my memory. Uh, is the judge who heard the same the summary judgment motion the, the same as the trial judge? Or was it? No, Your Honor. Okay, so obviously the evidence was before two separate trials, two separate trial judges, correct? Uh, no, Your Honor, because the lack of capacity was never before the trial judge. Well, it was on summary judgment. Uh, we, we had one judge for the capacity claim and another judge for the undue influence claim. Right. So, but you lost both, correct? Your client lost both. Yes, Your Honor. So, that, I guess that's the problem I'm having with conflating the two arguments because, again, if, if either judge was wrong, it goes back. Yes, Your Honor. You agree with that? Yes, Your Honor. So, on, on, as to that issue. Yes, as to that issue. So what I'm trying to understand is, taking everything you say is true and everything in the record, um, where was the error in the ruling of the trial court, both on summary judgment and on direct verdict, giving you the benefit of all inferences and taking everything you say is true? Very simply, because we presented material facts that should have been put before the jury to decide. It's the judge's job only to determine that as a matter of law you're entitled to judgment not to weigh the credibility of evidence, but at summary judgment, if there is a material issue of fact, it should go forward. But you would still need to overcome the presumption of competency, correct? That's right, That's your burden. That's your, your, of course. Any testator is, is, deter, is uh, determined to be competent until proven otherwise. Our evidence, we believe, is strong enough to, uh, to get to the jury. We might lose at the jury level, but we think there's a material fact that the jury should resolve here, not the trial court saying, ignore all of that, there's no issue of material fact. And you think Dr. Steele's testimony provides that? Yes, Your Honor. Just yes. to survive the summary judgment yes, Your motion? Honor. Yes, Your Honor. For the reasons I was saying, he testified Alzheimer's is inexorably progressive, that it would have been worse 18 months later, and that if you have moderate dementia, his testimony was individuals with moderate dementia are unlikely to have capacity to execute estate planning documents. The caretakers actually even asked his urologist about a week after he signed the documents, a separate doctor to provide a letter of competency. He declined to do it. He said he would have deferred to the urologist, and under oath he testified that he didn't have any idea if this guy knew who the natural objects of his bounty were, or if he knew what his assets were, or if he knew what his estate plan would provide. 
So you have two doctors that declined to issue a letter of capacity. You have a nurse at John Hopkins that contacted my client in April of 2017 and said, you need to be concerned about his medical examination. You, you should see a copy of the report. That report indicated that his, his mental state was deteriorating. And you have a decedent, this goes to the Bob Godwin issue, who before his death told everybody that his daughter was getting his real estate when she wasn't. I mean, that's prima facie evidence, I think, of the fourth part of lack of capacity, which is you don't know the effect of the plan you signed. And if you look at the facts surrounding the actual execution of the will, he signed those documents on August 9th. On August 5th, he was in such acute pain that he was in the emergency room, suffering from a urinary tract infection and constipation. He reported extreme pain in his right side and radiating up through his ribs and his chest. On August 6th, by the way, the caretakers are making charges on his credit card to Airbnb. Meanwhile, on August 7th, despite the fact that his urinary tract infection and constipation have not been resolved, the estate planning attorney and the caregiver speak three times on his cell phone, and then the caregiver takes him to the attorney's office to discuss changing his estate plan. The next day, on August 8th, he's back at the doctor's office, still in extreme pain, reports not having had a bowel movement for a week, and the medical records note he indicates he's experiencing confusion. Yet the very next day on August 9th, he's back in Cecil's office where he is presented with over 61 pages of legal documents, including a new will, a revocable trust, and four deeds. He was not provided copies of these documents ahead of time. The, the testimony is that Mr. Harvell spent 20 to 25 minutes going over 61 pages of documents with him. He signed them, and then he was not given copies when he left. Meanwhile, he, at the same time, a week later, they're asking a urologist for a mental competency uh, evaluation, which the urologist fails, refuses to give. And at the same time, you have, in the, in the facts, you have a caregiver saying that it's up to me, Teresa's not going to get a goddamn thing, and telling him that if he doesn't take out a domestic violence protective order against his own daughter for trying to tell him that his caregivers are stealing from him, she's going to quit. So... You have a case here where you have an alien 87-year-old man with Alzheimer's and dementia who files papers through the caregivers in his estate planning attorney's office. They filed two domestic violence protective orders against a daughter for trying to see her father. And at the time that he testifies at the second domestic violence protective hearing, which is only a month after the documents are signed, he gets wheeled in in a wheelchair. He can barely answer the questions. Then a break is taken, and the matter is voluntarily dismissed before Teresa's attorney even has the opportunity to cross-examine him. Meanwhile, the evidence ends up showing that the day before, when Adult Protective Services went out to the house to interview him, he didn't even know what war he'd fought in. He didn't know how long he'd been married. He thought he fought in World War II. He didn't know how many acres of land he owned. I mean, this is a clearly confused man with medical documentation indicating that he has dementia and Alzheimer's. With caregivers, it's Paula, her son April, I mean her son Justin, her son April, and her niece Dana, who have all moved into the house and taken over control of this man. They have his estate planning attorney cell phone on speed dial. They call him regularly. Anytime Teresa tries to stop by, the caregivers call Cecil's office. Cecil sent them a letter that said, sent Teresa a letter that said she could not see her father unless she contacted his office. On the Andrews factors, little opportunity to see the decedent taking control of his life, procuring the execution of the document. Those are all present based on these facts. The, um, the second DVPO was dismissed, correct? They were both dismissed, voluntarily dismissed. They were both dismissed. dismissed, so there was never any, your client never had any, any legal restrictions from contacting her father at all. Other than when the second domestic violence protective order complaint was filed, she was then sent a letter saying that she could not contact her father except through Cecil Harvell's office. But once that was dismissed, she was under no, she was under no restraint, correct? And that's right, Your Honor. And she tried to go visit, and she was allowed only two opportunities to see her, see her father in a Bojangles parking lot. And when she tried to come back in the house, Paula started screaming and said she'd quit and said Teresa had to leave. When she tried to come at Thanksgiving, Paula instructed the caregivers that she was not allowed to be around her father alone. She was never allowed to be around him alone except for those two incidences in the Bojangles parking lot. I, I see your time is close, so do you want to? Yes, I'd like to let him address the other two issues. Okay. Thank, Thank you. Anna. And you have 10 minutes in addition reserved. Yes. 
In the interest of time, may it please the Court, my name is Jesse Schaefer, but in the interest of time, I'd like to start with the fourth issue before the Court today, which is the question of whether the trial court improperly held that Teresa's claims lacked substantial merit. Uh, this issue, of course, is related to Teresa's motions for motion for attorney's fees. And by way of quick background, our statute, statute uh, section 6-21, allow uh, a trial court to award attorney's fees in will and caveat cases. This Court has recognized that the purpose of that statute is to ensure that parties with meritorious challenges to a will or trust agreement are not discouraged from bringing those claims by the prospect of attorney's fees. That's the Hill v. Cox case. In other words, this statute is designed to encourage precisely this type of litigation. Accordingly, the substantial merit uh, standard is a low bar. A caveator does not need to win at trial in order to show substantial merit. Doesn't even need to win at directed verdict or summary judgment. Instead, the Supreme Court has repeatedly recognized, most recently in the Dyer case in 1992, that substantial merit exists when, one, there are reasonable grounds to suspect that the will or trust may be invalid, and two, the challenge was apt and proper and brought in good faith. In this case, despite the low bar, the trial court's the trial court ruled that Teresa's claims lacked substantial merit. That order should be reversed for two reasons. First, the trial court lacked jurisdiction to enter that order while this appeal was pending. And second, the court's conclusion is not supported by its findings of fact or the evidence in the case. As to the first reason, the lack of jurisdiction, it's undisputed in this case that an appeal divests the trial court of jurisdiction to enter any orders that might be affected by the outcome of the appeal. That's section 1-294 of our general statutes. It's also undisputed in this case that the fees order was entered after the notice of appeal. In fact, the, the trial court originally concluded that it didn't have jurisdiction to rule on the, the fees motions in accordance with our arguments below. But about 30 minutes after uh, the appellee's counsel warned the trial judge by email that they would try to recall him to the bench after retirement, if he didn't rule on the substantial merits issue, he changed his mind and found a lack of substantial merit, effectively denying Teresa's motion. The key question on this issue, the jurisdiction issue, is simple. Can the court's substantial merit ruling be affected by the outcome of this appeal? And the answer is yes. If she succeeds on the appeal, the trial court would have been wrong that she didn't submit sufficient evidence on the issues of capacity and undue influence. She would then have the opportunity to go and, we believe, have a good chance of winning at trial. Of course, it's axiomatic that if you win at trial, you had substantial merit because, again, substantial merit just means that there are reasonable suspicions and your claim was brought in good faith. That's precisely the conclusion this court reached in the Gibbons case, and the, the court should do the same here. In, in the Gibbons case, the caveator appealed, um, or excuse me, the, the court entered judgment on the merits, the caveator appealed, and then the, the court entered a fees order based on its conclusion that there was no merit. Um, this court held that that, clear, that that ruling, the fees order, was clearly affected by the outcome of the judgment from which the plaintiffs appealed, appealed and reversed it. The same should happen here. The second reason that the fees order should be reversed is the trial court's legal conclusion that the claims lack substantial merit is not supported by the findings of fact or by the evidence. On this point, the Supreme Court's rule, uh, case opinion in Dyer is controlling. And in Dyer, they, they held that there was substantial merit um, because the evidence presented suggested that there was reasonable grounds to suspect that the decedent lacked capacity and therefore the filing of the caveat was apt and proper and done in good faith. That was a case that the caveator lost. So that reasonable suspicion plus good faith standard is the same standard that the Supreme Court laid out in Matter of Ridge in 1981. It's the same case that uh, same standard that the court laid out in Dyer in 1992. It's the same standard that this court should apply today. Uh, the, court of, the Court of Appeals in Dyer reversed, uh, trying to apply a higher standard on, uh, on uh, substantial merit, and the Supreme Court reversed in that case and said, no, the lower standard applied by the trial court was correct. So applying those standards to this case, uh, the trial court should not have concluded uh, Teresa was entitled to a uh, finding of substantial merit if she was reasonably suspicious about incapacity un and undue influence, and she brought her claims in good faith. Stated differently, the court should not have concluded that substantial merit was lacking unless it found that she did not bring her claims in good faith or there were no grounds to be suspicious about the uh, capacity or lack of or, or undue influence. Turning briefly, uh, 
Your Honors, to uh, the third issue, that's the question of the Bob Godwin testimony. Bob Godwin is a cousin of Teresa's who would have testified that about five months after the most recent challenge documents were signed, Herman Godwin gathered his family together, told them that he was dying, and said, this is how my property will pass. And he specifically said that Teresa would receive all of his real estate. That testimony was excluded by the trial judge for, for somewhat unclear reasons. Uh, we understood it to be a Rule 401 relevance uh, issue, uh, it, but it was clearly relevant here because it, it's relevant to capacity. If he didn't understand how his will was operating, our, his statement clearly showed he didn't know how his will was, was operating. It's also relevant because it, is, it corroborates Teresa's um, undue influence claims. Uh, because it shows that he was not aware of any long history of conflict with Teresa, which is her consistent testimony throughout this entire case. Uh, it's relevant. It's not hearsay. It's not excluded by the dead man statute, and therefore it should have been admitted. Now, in their brief, they're arguing that the court somehow uh, was ruling under Rule 403 based on a convoluted argument that, uh, you know, she's only challenging the most recent wills, that's not true. Uh, she's, this is a will caveat. All wills are at issue. It's an in-rim proceeding. So even the March 2017 will, which they claim is not challenged, is being challenged in this will caveat. And therefore, that argument under 403, for what it's worth, is, is meritless. So pending any what questions what by the court. Your time. Thank you. Uh, if you'd like to make a concluding statement, that'd be fine. Thank you, Your Honor. Simply put, this court should reverse both the order, the fees order, uh, which found no substantial merit because there is substantial merit and the court did not properly apply the standard for substantial merit. And the court should reverse the order that excluded Bob Godwin's testimony because it's relevant and probative of the issues in this case. Thank, Thank you. you. Hear from the uh, appellee. Yes, Your Honor. Good afternoon. It pleases the court. My name is Wes Collins. I represent the propounders in this case. David Creech represents Mr. Mr. Harbell, who did not align in this in the caveat case. Um, I'd like to give him about five minutes at the end of the argument, okay. um, and of course, I'll monitor that. Um, I would like to uh, first address um, kind of a 30,000-foot view with regard to this, and obviously I know the court certainly has the, the record, but what, we're, what we see in the record and we see in the argument is the position that has ultimately been taken by the appellants in this case, caveators in the case, is the caregivers who receive $7,000 each of an approximately $1.8 to $1.9 million estate were the undue influencers. Let me ask you yeah. this. Um, Again, you had a summary judgment on one issue and you had a directed verdict on the other issue, correct? Yes, Your Honor. Um, competency, we've already discussed about the presumption of competence. Yes, Your Honor. And the standard that it takes or the evidence that it takes to overcome that. Um, and I guess if the evidence is not there, there's no genuine issue of fact, then the presumption remains. Is that, is that your argument? That is correct. Yes, sir. So do you also agree that if we reach a contrary result on either issue, that the case would have to go back? I would agree. Okay. All right. Sure, Your Honor. Question um, for you, Mr. Collins. Your motion for summary judgment uh, doesn't specify which claims that you're, you're challenging on summary judgment. It's the, the generic language that you right. can see in these. Um, would you agree that the undue influence claim survived your summary judgment challenge? I would agree. I think both were considered, both were briefed, both were argued. Thank you. There was some conversation by Ms. Arias with regard to Dr. Steele and his opinions. I think it's vitally important for the court not to have a characterization of that evidence, but to understand specifically what that testimony was. Since I've been asked about the summary judgment motion and the issue of undue influence, it was first brought to my attention uh, by Judge Carpenter. I would like to address uh, specifically the affidavit of Dr. Steele, who, mind you, was the only evidence that was, was provided relative to uh, lack of capacity at the summary judgment stage. Teresa Godwin's testimony was in the record that she had no opinion as it relates to that because she hadn't been around her father. Do you have, that, a, page, do you have a record? I do. It's page 68 of the affidavit of Jay Griffin Steele. Uh, it actually starts on 66. 
Dr. Steele, uh, he's a neurologist. He examined Mr. Goodwin only on January 25th, 2016. What, one minute. I'm uh, sorry. Mr. Collins, we're trying to locate. I'm looking at volume one, page 66. That appears to be the fourth page of the, I think, amended complaint. Yeah. First amended complaint. Okay. Is it in volume two? Um, nope. I, it, I don't have the volume. I have the page number. I apologize. Okay. Let's see. Go ahead. We'll, we'll hear the argument. We'll locate it. Okay. Later. Thank you. I apologize. I just have the, the number. Okay. In the Rule 9 document, page 68. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, Got it. Thank you, Mr. Morris. Um, yes, moving on with regard to that, um, the opinion and of Dr. Steele, I stated in the affidavit, is I concluded that Mr. Godwin presented with mild dementia. That's as, as of January 14, 2016. He states, I'm unable to provide my, any opinion as to Mr. Godwin's cognitive function uh, for any other day other than January 25, 2016, as this is the only day I personally met with him. Most importantly, um, I evaluated Mr. Godwin on January 25, 2016. He had the capacity to understand and know who his family members were. He had the capacity to understand and know what assets he owned. He had the capacity to understand and know how he wanted his estate to pass upon his death and how legal documents would operate for that purpose. This expert also indicated, according to the chart, I did not have the occasion to talk to Mr. Godwin about the details of his family, his assets, how he may have wanted his assets to pass. In my opinion, he would have been able to discuss and understand these issues during the times that I met with him. His ability to understand cause and effect was intact. There's no contrary indication in the chart. The record would also indicate that during the trial testimony that was taken to Ben essay of Dr. Steele, he indicated he had no opinion as it relates to whether there would have been any progression of the condition that, that um, Mr. Gowan had. The burden is on the appellant in order to, to advance uh, that, that argument. Furthermore... A verified complaint would be some evidence at the summary judgment, too, though, correct? It would be, under Rule 56, yes. Um, in addition to that, we have the testimony of, the, of Mr. Harvell. We have the testimony of the attesting witnesses, the notary, Dr. French, who, is, um, who was the caring physician who saw uh, Mr. Gowan on... May 8th, August 7th, September 5th, October 6th, October 13th, November 14th, December 8th, December 19th, and January 19th, all of 2017, January 19th being in 2018. His opinion that was that he had capacity, he understand, understood the natural objects of his, his bounty, um, understand what assets he had, understood uh, how will would affect the disposition of his property. In that opinion, um, extended all the way to the last time he saw him on January 19, 2018, which was approximately four months or five months approximately um, from the date that the last will was signed. So moving on, we have Dr. Let French. Let me ask you something, yes. just looking at the parties in the case. The caregivers are not before us, correct? Uh, I'm not sure I understand the question. Looking at the parties in the case, um, the caregivers aligned. They aligned with the with the, the executor and the trustee. The executor did not align in the caveat. He is he's in the case because he's the executor and is bound by the rulings of the court. Correct. He did not align because he is he's neutral. Um, the caregivers did align. Um, uh, Heather who is the granddaughter who received the bulk of the estate, 50%, essentially. And then her two children, the two great-grandchildren, um, Zoe and Aiden. This they, is the deceased sister of the plaintiff, correct? Uh, uh, Heather is the... Is the Their mother. Survive, yes. Okay. No, no, no. He Heather... Uh, yeah, that's correct. That's correct, yes. The deceased sister, yes, correct, Your Honor. So Barbara was the was the daughter who died about two months before the August will was signed. That's correct, Judge. Yes. Mr. Collins, is it your position that Mr. Harville, in his capacity as executor, is not a propounder of the will? Correct. Uh, that process, um, of course, is driven by statute, and when a caveat is filed, there's an alignment 
proceeding and parties may choose to align um, with one side or the other caveator or propounder, or they may choose to not align but still be bound by whatever the rulings of the court may be. I, he, I yeah. think you're answering a question that I didn't ask. My, oh, I'm sorry. My question is, is it your position that Cecil Harville, in his capacity as executor, is not a propounder of the will, not a party presenting the will for probate? Correct. I understand the alignment question. That's a different question. Okay. Right. You're, you're saying he's not a propounder. He didn't take the he didn't take the wheel down to the clerk's office and and uh, present it for probate. I, I think he certainly had the right to do that. I don't know as I stand here right now if he did that. He's the executor. I think that by statute he would have an obligation to take that document if he has the original to the courthouse and actually put it on record and then follow the procedures. So, following up on Judge Carpenter's question, then the fact that an executor would present a will for probate does not necessarily make them a propounder of that will. Correct. Particularly if the will is challenged. Propounder to me is a term of art and a caveat, but it can certainly mean, um, I think, what Judge Carpenter asked me. Yes. So you, you can submit the will as the executor, and that, I think, a proper term to use when that person is submitting the will would be a propounder, but you're still not a propounder in the caveat. I, I hope I'm clear on that as far as my response. Okay. Um, moving on as it relates to the, what I understood the case was about and what most of the testimony was about as it relates to any type of uh, undue influence. Um, my understanding, Judge, it was really two things, and I think this is borne out by the brief as well. I think it was, number one, use of credit cards and signing of checks. Um, but ultimately, the handwriting expert never arrived in an opinion as to who may have signed the checks. And Jocelyn Montfort, who is the DSS worker, who um, evaluated Mr. Godwin about a month after the final will was signed, indicated in her testimony that Mr. Godwin knew that others were signing checks for him and approved it and was fine with it. She also indicated that he had full capacity, there was no issue with regard to uh, his ability to make decisions for himself. When she interviewed him, he was alone in the event um, that uh, he was under undue influence. Uh, he would have ample opportunity to explain that to her. She had no concern uh, whatsoever. So most of the testimony with regard to the checks and the credit cards that are in the record, which I understand the suggestion to be because the caregivers may have had something to do with that, they must have had something to do with undue influence. That's a really very broad jump, and I don't think supported by our law, especially when you have a situation where we're asking the court to speculate because we never had any opinion provided as to who actually signed the checks. Now, you're saying that it's normal for a caregiver to go out and purchase items for the ward if they call it that, or for the person they're giving care, yes. that it's normal if they go out and eat that they would, that they would, the, the ward would pay for everybody. That's not abnormal in and of itself. I think that that, I think that's normal. Bonuses. No, no, number one, I think that number two, that it was his choice. There's no evidence he didn't have the right to make that choice. Um, I think number three, even assuming that if it's determined that that's not normal, it's not undue influence. And one thing that was not mentioned uh, in the appellant's argument was that, of course, this court well knows, um, read certainly Judge Tyson's opinion on, in, the, in the Whitaker case, um, that the relevant time period for undue influence and lack of capacity is at this time of the signing of the document. And there has to be specific evidence of this. There can't be innuendo, there can't be assumptions, there has to be specific evidence, and it has to be the sole basis. That's what Whitaker says. And when we have a situation where the, where, where the attorney who has been the attorney, the family attorney, since 2009, his testimony is, is that the reason that, um, that Mr. Gowan chose to enter the will, sign the will the way that he did and, and, and direct his attorney to do that was because he was fed up with the things that his daughter had done, it can't be the sole basis. So I would offer, offer that um, to the court. 
there was a suggestion, uh, Your Honor, that there was not a history of strife. Um, I would refer to the um, affidavit of David Perry, which would be on page 75 under the Rule 9 documents as well, where um, this was before the court on summary judgment. This was a, there were multiple situations where the police were called out to the, the property because of issues with the family, um, because the cops incident that's indicated in the record. And Herman became independently upset with Teresa during these time frames when Mr. Harvell wasn't there. The, car, the caregivers were not, were not involved, but Teresa was there and other family members were there. So I don't think that it's denied that uh, Herman was upset with his daughter and was upset with the actions she was taking, such as, as indicated in the brief in the record, the situation where uh, Teresa had gone to Wells Fargo and had accessed his accounts. And he didn't like that and took the $10,000 to hire an attorney to look into to issues um, that she admitted were, were uh, uh, was his money. Referring back to the David Perry uh, affidavit, he stated, um, and this is on his incident report of 10-21-15, that Herman stated to him, Teresa is mad at him because he threatened to remove her from his will after she failed to accurately manage his finances and because she is angry that he only gave $7,500 to her pregnant daughter instead of the $15,000 um, to give her years ago when she was old enough. Mr. Collins, if I recall yes. from the record or from the briefs, uh, Deputy Perry never interviewed Teresa Godwin. Is that I think that's correct. So my question is, how would he know that stuff about what Teresa thought if he didn't interview her? I think it would, it would all have come from Herman. I think that when he has stated that Herman told me these things, that's coming from Herman's mind. And I think that's very relevant with regard to this case because obviously we're trying to determine whether he was, he had capacity to understand these things and trying to determine uh, whether he was under undue influence. And so I think that's the answer to that question. I do want to address the Bob Godwin testimony issue. I think that's vitally important. Um, He's a family member, is that correct? He, he lived out in Tacoma, Washington. Um, and his uh, essay, actually discovery deposition was taken uh, via Zoom and there was a motion in limine prior to trial so that we can have a determination as to whether he needed to come all the way from Tacoma, Washington uh, for trial. Did you take a essay deposition of him or was it just the discovery? Just deposition? discovery. It may have been that we could have used that but I think the intent was to actually have him there live. Um, So as it relates to Bob Godwin, what's vitally important with regard to that, and Your Honor, this is a case, I keep saying Your Honor, Your Honor, the panel, this is a case in which it's vitally important to not simply rely upon the arguments, but to go to the record and look at that record closely to make sure that the arguments are consistent and supported by the record. I would submit to the court, and I don't have time to go through every one of these, I would submit to the, port, to the court, we have repeated situations in this case where there are misstatements of the record um, in the briefs and there have been arguments that are misstatements. I will point out uh, one with regard to Bob Godwin. The position of the appellants with regard to Bob Godwin, and they stated it at least two or three times in their brief, their reply brief, that Bob Godwin's testimony would have been that he spoke with Herman Godwin about two or three weeks before he died. This would have been approximately February of 2018. And their position is that Herman said that he believed that his real estate was to go to his daughter. Wrong. That is not what he said at all. That is a vital distinction here because our courts have made a distinction as to whether this is a testamentary intent statement such as someone's making the comment, I would like my house to go to someone, as compared to my will indicates it goes to someone, or I have it set up that it goes to someone. He did not state that he believed that that property, or any property, was to go to his daughter. What he stated, which was examined and cross-examined, question, did he say that he already had it set up for those things to go to Teresa 
or that's what he wanted to happen? Answer, I don't recall. Question, was there any indication to you based on what he said that he already had this set up so that these things will go to Teresa? Answer, I don't recall. Next, I think your testimony was he said, I want my real estate to go to Teresa. That's basically what he said. Answer, correct. I don't recall the exact words he used, but the property, I mean the land and the buildings on it were to go to Teresa. Question, okay. But he did not say, I already have it set up, so the land and the buildings on it go to Teresa. He did not say that, did he? I don't recall. Again, I don't recall him stating anything about having it already set up. Why does that matter? Because we referenced this in our brief. The Supreme Court has been very clear on this. Statements after the execution of the document, this is five months after, regarding testamentary intent, such as it would be my wish at this point in time for my car to go to my church or something like that. That's just simply a statement about what the person wants at that point in time. Contrast that with I've set things up so my car goes to my church and it's in my will. That's different. Under the latter situation, that type of evidence may be admissible. It's limited, but it may be admissible, but only admissible for purposes of corroborating or substantiating otherwise other um, substantial and um, supporting evidence, substantive evidence of undue influence, that's what the cases say, but perhaps also undue or uh, lack of capacity. Is it relevant, Mr. Collins, that uh, the plaintiff was a beneficiary under a prior will that was changed? When we say the plaintiff, we mean the caveator? Uh, Ms. Yes. Yes. yes, it, it is. And from a factual perspective, that is very important. Uh, because as we go back in time. Because that would be a statement of the testator's intent at the time it was done too, correct? Right. Yep. So is it logical for someone to ask why was it changed? To ask why was it changed? Absolutely. Yes. And there was. Now people change wills sometimes once a, day, once a week. They have the choice to do that. Right. And we have a chronology in this case as to why. And to go back to another issue that Your Honor did ask. Um, with regard to the DBPOs and whether she was restricted. You may notice in the, to see her father. You may see in the pleadings uh, that the allegation with regard to that is that she was restricted from being able to see her father. However, it was established during her examination that that was her choice for a 19-month period of time from December of 2015 to July 29th of 2007. My question was whether, whether there was some legal restraint Right. And, there and was I think not. the question, the answer was no, there was not, once, once they were dismissed. That's correct. The time period you're talking about were between the two DVPO filings, though, correct? Uh, essentially, I think the second DVO, DVPO filing was on 9-7-17, and then on July 29, 2017, Teresa did spend time with her father because her, they all went to Monroe, North Carolina, because her daughter had just, um, his daughter, Barbara, had uh, unexpectedly passed away. Okay, so from J July 29, 2017 to 9-7-17, seven, um, th there was no DVPO in place, and Teresa had kind of spent time with her father in and around the, um, the funeral uh, arrangements, those type things that took place in Monroe. Now, w Were the caregivers present for those times, too, during they, the funeral? They were. They were. Um, and the testimony in the case with regard to that is the issue that caused a problem for Herman and that was under Mr. Uh, Harwell's testimony was that Herman indicated he was fed up about was the fact that Teresa was again attempting to have him adjudicated incompetent although she denies that the record indicates in the police reports and otherwise that, that, there was, that, that was something that they were attempting to look at and that is supported by the letter that Roy Ivey gave to Herman uh, in Monroe that, that Teresa had just sent to um, his wife. Okay, this is Roy Ivey. Barbara was his wife who passed away. This was given to Herman. Uh, this is part of the record. Um, 
that Barbara attached are the medical papers from John Hancock. They don't say much, but do imply daddy relies on caregivers more than ever. Uh, think we might want to contact Mr. Johnson, who's Wiles Johnson, the attorney, to have uh, him prepare court papers to seek daddy financially incompetent and have a guardian of his estate appointed. The testimony was that this was essentially the straw that broke the camel's back for uh, for Herman, and he immediately, upon return of um, to uh, to Moorhead City, to Newport, North Carolina, contacted his attorney, and at that point in time, made the determination to enter the documents that were ultimately signed August 9th, um, 2017. Those were the final sets of documents. He, he had already cut freestyle in an earlier draft. On the personal property, not yet on the real property. Yes, yes, sir. Um, the real property was still in a trust, but I would offer this to you. Keep in mind that the caregivers, which are the purported undue influencers, and there's no case that I've seen where an executor is, is described as a beneficiary and can be an undue influencer. Okay? If the caregivers are the undue influencers, the first time they showed up in any will was on 1-13-2016. Um, on at that point in time, they received $7,000 each. That's it. That never changed. Never changed to the next will or the next will. That will, 113-2016, and the corresponding trust documents that were in place at that point in time were the most favorable documents that were ever put in place for Teresa. Those documents gave her everything except for $7,000 and $7,000, and I think there was another $7,000 um, that was to um, Zoe. 527 left for me. I think that Mr. Creech would, would like to speak now. Okay. Thank you very much, Your Honor. You, have a, you want a moment to sum up your argument in case you do not have a chance to come back? I'll, yeah. I gave other opposing counsel that courtesy. Do you like that now or at the very end? It's up to you. Um, I, I'll let Mr. Creech do that. I, I will just say. I'll give you a moment at the end. Okay. I'll, okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mr. Creech. Good afternoon, Your Honor. Welcome to the court. Thank you. May it please the court. My name is David Creech with Craven County Bar. I represent Mr. Cecil Harvell in his capacity as trustee of the Herman Godwin Trust. I would like to address, well, I'd like to address Mr. Harvell's role in all this because his name has come up quite a bit. I think it's important to point out to the court that when we were trying this case, there was one person and one person only who had the ability and who testified about Herman Godwin's capacity and whether he was under any type of undue influence at the time that he executed his will and his trust agreement. That was Mr. Harvell. Mr. Harvell was also the only person that gave a direct and specific reason that Mr. Godwin gave him for why he was changing his will in August of 2017, which would be the last will and the last trust document. If you look at page 19 of Mr. Creech, did I understand that your client had represented Mr. Godwin since 2009? Yes, is that he, correct? That's correct. In fact, he drafted the estate documents that they now contained by the last will and trust. What there were wills was the will that benefited the plaintiff already in place, or did your client draft that as well? That, I know we, we had heard that there had been a prior will of some type. I'm not sure Mr. Harvell actually had that. He uh, sort of took this anew. And in, in his original draft, did he uh, draw provisions in favor of the plaintiff, Ms. Godwin? Yes, in the 2009 will, yes. Everything was pretty much essentially divided between the two sisters. Did the, did the event of one sister's death, is that, when I read everything, it, it seemed that be a, that seemed to be a triggering event? It, it was progressive. As Mr. Collins just pointed out to you, the will that was drafted prior to the one in January 2016, as it turned out, because the, the deceased sister died first, Almost everything except for these $7,000 gifts would have ended up going to Ms. Godwin. Now, that's one of the state documents that they're challenging. But under that, it would have. The events also progressed. So they had a good, loving relationship at one time. However, the facts that came out at trial 
indicated that this had seriously degenerated. And by the time we get down to August of 2017, Mr. Godwin told Mr. Harvell he was, quote, fed up with Teresa's annex. And what had happened, and Mr. Mr. Collins hinted on this, you'll find it on page 19 of the, of the appellant's brief. Ms. Uh, Teresa Godwin obtained from her brother-in-law a letter that Teresa Godwin wrote to her sister. This is the one Mr. Collins just yes, referred to. And, and this letter indicated that they were going to incidentally take Mr. Godwin's money, $10,000 that she removed from a, a safe deposit box without his permission, and, go, and they were hiring a lawyer in Kinston to have him declared incompetent. Mr. Godwin was furious about that. He told Mr. Harvell, take her out. Take all of the, the land that was in the 2009 trust, put it in the new trust that we're going to set up. Teresa will now get nothing. And that was the reason he made the change, and he made it very clear to Mr. Harvell. And that is the only evidence of what his state of mind was on the date that these estate documents were executed. Now, there's been mention made of the shortness of time given the number of documents that um, he signed, that 61 pages in 30 minutes or whatever it was. You want to comment on that? Well, first of all, I think, you know, look how much we accomplished in 30 minutes in here. But more importantly, these documents were not that different from what he had executed before. In fact, the, the will and the trust were very similar to what he had executed prior to that. The big change was he wanted to move the real estate into the new trust that had been set up with the uh, great-granddaughter with the granddaughter and the great-grandchildren being the beneficiaries. So th this was all nothing new to Mr. Harville. A big deal has also been made about attorney's fees in this case. You know, whoever administered the estate, if it wasn't going to be a relative doing it for free, if it was going to be an attorney, was going to expect to get paid. Those fees are set by statute. They're approved by the clerk of court. And there was zero evidence, and I have said zero evidence, competent evidence introduced at trial that Mr. Harvell's fees were excessive, that they were unreasonable, or that there was anything about that that actually motivated him other than pure speculation. And the trial court just didn't buy it. Thank you. You, have a, you want to make a closing comment? Uh, just no, no, what I, I, I've already mentioned, Your Honor, that this is the only real competent evidence about what happened. They, you know, they failed with regard to uh, imputing the competency of the law enforcement officers that went out and investigated this and found absolutely nothing. With regard to the caseworker of Adult Protective Services who went out and investigated Mr. Goblin's situation and found absolutely nothing. So they turned their guns on Mr. Harvell. And the fact is, he wasn't a beneficiary. He didn't have a dog in the fight. All he needed to do and wanted to do was take care of Mr. Godwin's wishes. Thank you, Mr. Thank Creek. You. Mr. Collins, you have a brief statement you want to make in closing for your argument? Or? Very briefly, Judge. Uh, I'll give you a moment just to conclude. Okay, thank you. Your Honor, this case is a little different than most caveat cases because normally in caveat cases, you're looking for evidence as to the condition of the testator at the time the subject document was signed, and a lot of times it's very thin. A lot of times the best we have is if, if an attorney is involved, we um, have the attorney, the testing witnesses, and the notary. That's it. If we're lucky, we might have some medical records that are close in time. In this case, we have a multitude of evidence, and every bit of it, every bit of it, even Mr. Dr. Steele, cuts to the propounder side because we know the most important issue in any caveat that our courts have said, our Supreme Court and courts of appeal have said, is, the, is whether, is the capacity and whether the person is subject to undue influence based on his or her condition. So very briefly, who are those witnesses? Mr. Harvell, the attesting witnesses, those three, those are three witnesses, the notary, notary, Dr. French, Dr. Steele, the urologist who saw him 30 times in the last year, Dr. Whitmore. Jocelyn Montford, who saw him in January of 2018, Officer Perry, Officer, Duck, Officer Buck, okay? Even Teresa has no opinion with regard to his capacity or whether he could have been subject to undue influence. So this is one of, and, and we have the DVBO, DVPO transcript that was about five weeks after the last will was signed where Mr. Godwin testified in open court with Teresa there and her attorney, not these attorneys, 
without any objection whatsoever. He testified competently, clearly, identified his family, talked about his assets. That record is absolutely clear that he did what he was wanting to do. He was there in court, and no one was coaxing him before, uh, before the district court when he was sitting on, on the stand, swore on the good book, and testified. We is don't that, often have is that, that transcript in the Rule 9 supplement? Is that it correct? Is. It, it, it is. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll hear back from the appellants on rebuttal. Mr. Thank Schaefer, you're going to argue the rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. I think the overarching response that I'd like for this court to take away from our rebuttal is that they are asking this court to weigh the evidence. You heard it repeatedly, that their, their witnesses were the only credible witnesses and that we failed to impugn the credibility of their witnesses. Uh, they also so much has said that, that although she denies it, this is what the evidence shows. That's not the standard for a directed verdict. The directed verdict is if there, are, if there is any conflicting evidence, you take the evidence that is favorable to Teresa, and then you move forward to determine whether that evidence, accepted as true, is sufficient. That is what this case is about. That's why the trial court erred, because they started weighing the evidence. They can make all of these arguments to the jury, and I, I expect that they will. But the bottom line is, as Ms. Uh, Arias mentioned, we have substantial evidence that there was undue influence and lack of capacity in this case, and they can't just argue that our evidence doesn't count because their evidence is better. That's not the standard on appeal. Getting into some of the details of what they, they spoke about here, he mentioned the Steele affidavit. Steele is the neurologist who submitted an affidavit. At trial, Dr. Steele testified he doesn't even remember uh, Mr. Godwin, so he does, none of this is based on his actual recollection. It's just based on his general theories of how uh, this works. And his affidavit is actually affidavit that this patient of his had uh, capacity is actually contradicted in the documentary exhibit, page 890, uh, that, that exhibit where he said, I will not give, a, at the time, he said, I will not give an opinion as to competence, period, full stop. And then several years later, he's signing an affidavit saying, oh, this guy that I don't remember is actually competent. That's conflicting evidence. You have to take the, the part where he said, I don't have, I cannot form an opinion as to capacity as true. Let me just make a point here again. The, 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 burden, the burden would be on the person asserting incompetence, correct? That's correct. And, and that, the fact that if, if evidence is equivocal, that doesn't carry a burden either. Well, that, that would be a question for the jury. That would be a question for the jury. And that is what we're saying here. Is this is simply something that should go to the jury. And uh, on directed verdict, that is what the trial court should have been weighing. If I accept all of their evidence, resolve all disputes in their favor, draw all reasonable f inferences in, in her favor, should this have gone to a jury? Could a reasonable person conclude with that set of facts that there was uh, incapacity or, or undue influence? And in this case, the answer is clearly yes. Clearly yes, a reasonable person could have concluded, by whatever standard, that this, this gentleman was suffering from incapacity based on the evidence in the light most favorable to us. They also mentioned the handwriting expert, uh, and they, they complained about how the handwriting expert didn't say who signed the checks. It's irrelevant because the reason the handwriting expert testified was because Herman Godwin repeatedly, I think it's five times, to police officers, to his doctors, to his lawyer, to everyone, told everyone, I always sign my checks, always. He thought he did. He did not. And that's relevant both to undue influence and capacity because he doesn't know what his assets are. People are taking advantage of him, having, sign, having him sign two checks, paychecks to the caregivers on the same day, 100 uh, check numbers apart for the same amount, and then signing the checks as simulations. They opened a credit card in account in his name. Someone did. They opened a credit card account in his name that the, the SBI agent said was a forgery, was a simulation attempt. And every single check that was paid on that credit card was a simulation attempt of his signature. So it's relevant. It's very, very relevant here. And it doesn't matter who was signing it. It just matters that he wasn't, because that's what he thought. Um, they mentioned that Jocelyn Montford, who's the DSS agent, uh, testified that he knew that others were signing his checks. False. Go read the record. That is not a true statement of what she said. 
Uh, she just said that he generally said, I'm okay with whatever happens in my accounts. That's a completely different thing than saying, I know people are going behind my back and signing checks without my knowledge. Um, they also said it's, it's suggested that it's normal for caregivers to, to buy things for the ward. In this case, they purchased things for themselves. They bought cars. They went. They bought tickets to Disney World. They went on travel. The, the, the credit card statements show that the caregivers were traveling to Memphis to visit their own family on his dime. That is not normal, and that is something that the jury should have a chance to consider. I could go in in detail. I have several pages of notes here, but I'm going to refrain and simply ask the court, please, when you review this, consider the standard of review, which is simply if you resolve all disputes in our favor, all contradictory evidence in our favor, and draw all reasonable inferences in our favor, is that sufficient for a reasonable person to conclude that there was lack of capacity or undue influence? And in this case, based on the voluminous evidence that we have, the answer is clearly yes. And therefore, the trial court's order should be reversed. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, that's completed our docket for today. Mr. Farnham, will you adjourn court, please? All rise.